change is the only constant in every aspect of our lives. Be it how we work, how we live, how we learn. It forces us to make the right decisions without the choice of looking back at history and conventions to know what's right. I am Vikram Baskaran, and this is Charge B's Champions of Change podcast, where we talk to changemakers who walk before us, build businesses on first principles, and unearth their tips and tricks to identify change and turn that into opportunity. Remember, you're just one decision away from being a change maker. So quite a few business leaders dream of ringing that IPO bell in Wall Street. That's a big ambition. So today we have someone who's actually been instrumental in hitting that bell, not just once or twice, but three times in his career already. Specifically, we have someone who led that historic IPO for the first Indian SaaS and the software suite that's become the darling of the SMB and enterprise businesses, Freshworks. Join me in welcoming Tyler Slot, CFO at Freshworks. Before his latest home run, Tyler had already taken two companies public as the controller at uh, Port Software and as a CFO at Zora, the subscription management software provider. I'm very excited to have you with us uh, today, Tyler, at our podcast to share insights on how CFOs can become significant catalysts in a company's growth, but also your personal backstory, which I find super interesting. Vikram, happy to be here and thanks for having me. I'm excited for it. I was just going through your this probably not very popular part of your backstory where you grew up in Hawaii and your fascination with business started in fifth grade when you started trading baseball cards and organized garage sales and struck a deal with your friend to sell marbles that he brought back from Mexico, if I'm right. Can you, can you talk a little bit about, because this isn't the kind of story that we hear about your typical CFO. Can you talk to us a little bit about these childhood experiences and how that shaped your view into the future? I don't know why. I had a fascination with those things. I think, well, part of it is that we didn't have a lot of money growing up. So in order to, to have any spending money, I had to figure out how to make it. We often had jobs of one sort or another. And then, you know, growing up, I've kind of always had a job. I even worked through college. The first thing I did when I got to Boston College was go get a job with a bunch of folks that were on my uh, floor. And then I worked all the way through college. But early on, I just, I think, was fascinated with supply and demand. and the value that could be created when supply is short, but demand is high. My father recently reminded me that we would play board games growing up. And my favorite board game was uh, a game called Stock Market, which everybody else maybe wanted to play Monopoly or something else like that or Chance. But I always wanted to play Stock Market. And I think my family hated it. So I don't know how it started, but I always were kind of, was kind of drawn to it. That's interesting because I had that board game as well and I never understood it. I never understood the rules. <laughs> it was just, you know, it's also interesting because you, you said you didn't have a lot of money growing up, but you've helped create a lot of wealth for the ecosystem in general. You spent a decade at Zora playing a pivotal role, scaling the company to around 276 million in 2020 when you left to join Freshworks. And again, Freshworks is doing some amazing things for the ecosystem just uh, recently went public. Between taking these two organizations through a very interesting trajectory of their growth, what similarities did you see in these two paths and what makes each of these unique in your book? Definitely very different companies. And I clearly joined Freshworks at a different point in their tenure in terms of scale. When I joined Freshworks, we already had, I would say the revenue and the scale but really probably not the operational rigor and the systems and necessarily the people and the processes that were going to be needed for us to, number one, become a public company, 
But really, that's not the goal, right? The goal is to become a billion-dollar organization. That's the next goal. In order to do that, you, you have to really focus on kind of the mechanisms internally that are allow you to efficiently get there. When I joined Zora, it was different. First of all, it was a, a company that was creating a category. And so there was a lot of risk there. And I had already been with, I had come from a company called Obopay that was a, a mobile payments business that I was you know, really excited to be. I was a CFO there for three years. At the end, we had closed a deal that was big for us at the time with Nokia to bring mobile payments to India. And we were running uh, Nokia Pay, but we were also running payment service in Kenya, in Cameroon and Ivory Coast and some of the French colonized kind of countries for, with Society General as the, as the partner. I'd been with a business that had a vision for a category that didn't exist yet. And that was what Zora was, right? I envisioned that, hey, everything was going to move to subscription. And then when everything moves to subscription, there's going to be a requirement for a different system within companies to be able to manage that business. And, you know, obviously the next piece was, hey, when you do that, you should choose Zora. This obviously has created opportunities because the vision was true, right? And now opportunities for the likes of, of Targeby and a litany of other companies that now can go play in this huge market. The thing that comes from it was really interesting. On one side, I got to participate a lot with Zora on the investor community, which I had raised a decent amount of money, both at DeCrew and you know, where we sold the company and that Obopay was involved in all the raising. But Zora's was different because you know we we're raising on committed people with a vision and number two that we could execute. And the same time operationally. And so when I joined, there was about 40 people in the US and about a million of revenue and really with a lot of promise, but not a lot of folks. In fact, I joined and I would be very, as a CFO, but I didn't have a single employee because everybody had either left or we'd use consultants. And so I built up the entire team. I ended up managing every function at Zora except for engineering at one point or another, including technical operations, including professional services, including sales. And from that, it just gave me a lot of education on all of the different nuances that a lot of different groups were run, but also how operations and finance can really be an enabler for success and was able to take that and learn over time, but also put my fingerprint on things. That could help you know the company grow, which I think we did. Beautiful. You mentioned as a CFO, there were all of these other roles that you had to solve for, and I find it super interesting that you had to roll into technical operations as well. I mean, that I wouldn't have guessed. By a certain extension, I can understand how sales could roll in, but in general, if you look at what someone could have imagined the role of a CFO to be 15, 20 years ago, to what the role of the CFO is today. There's been a remarkable transformation. It's the role demands more strategy, more cross-functional understanding. What were some of the things that you've had to relearn and recalibrate and unlearn through through this journey of yours? I'm guessing, especially coming from a background in Zora, which is a pretty strong Finon software. Right. What's interesting is Zora, like Chargebee, it's a finance software in the back, but the whole premise of why you need it is that it enables your business to go engage with a customer in a flexible manner, right? The whole concept is to be able to allow your customers to go engage with their customers with pricing and packaging strategies and things that are, uh, number one, going to force them to earn that customer's business every single day. But on the other side, if you do be able to monetize it appropriately to be able to create a business around it. 
And so I take a similar view of the CFO role. You asked, hey, you know, what's the difference 15, 20 years ago to today? It's interesting. When, when folks think of CFO, their mind immediately goes to a picture of a person with a green visor with an abacus in front of them counting coin. I guess that's true for part of the business. But the reality is the accounting aspect of the CFO role is table stake. And that is actually not that interesting, but also something that is that strategic it is just a governance compliance thing that has to be done. So let me be really clear. That has to be done first and it has to be done correctly and it has to be scalable. But once done and put in place with the right people and the right systems and the right processes, it should enable a company to grow, but also get a lot of economies of scale. So then what is the CFO's job outside of that? The CFO's job in my mind is driven by business model ownership, data, and decision support. And so when you take those three things, a business model is not a, not a budget. The business model is how does a company, you know, what is a quantitative representation of qualitative success of a company? And then what are all the levers that can be pushed and pulled to be able to, to drive that success? The decision support is on the other side of that. And in between is data. How do you actually take data from the company? as related to the business model, and then provide functional support to business partners to help them make decisions to drive the results that you want in that business model. And so all three of those, I think the CFO is in a unique role because the CFO, by definition, has purview into all of the functions. And then having purview into all of the functions you know, has the benefit of having a lot of data that they then need to make sure is, number one, accurate and compliant, but true. And then really has an obligation to take that information and feed it back into the business in a format that can be digestible, that also can allow for the right decisions to be made to optimize the results for the company. That's what I think the CFO's job is. And so you come up with structures around organizational design and things to create that, but at the highest level, that's the CFO's job. I think that looks maybe a lot like what a COO would have done a long time ago. And I think there's kind of a gray area between those roles. And you often see a lot of CFOs, COO slash CFO or something like that. I don't think the titles are super important. It's really just what are the requirements of the job? I think that's the most important thing. I think your definition of data, I don't think I've ever heard it that way. In fact, if they built a statue for you in the town hall, I, you know that's what the statue should say. A quantitative representation of qualitative success. That's so cool. You spoke about technical operations before, and I've heard you speak about your focus on operation and execution readiness a bunch of times, especially during your, as the primary focus for the first 18 months of your time at Freshworks. I think that's something every organization, when it gets to that next major leap of scale, should be focusing on. Can you walk me through what did this process look like? What do you mean by operational and executional readiness for an organization? I think it's easy to define the end result. The end result is an organization that has frictionless processes that are very clear and within guidelines so that employees can get their jobs. They don't have to focus on anything but just getting their jobs done. The end result is a company that is predictable, that has capabilities to forecast accurately and understand what's in front of them. Uh, the end result is a clear way to make decisions within an organization and get to quick decisions that then take actions. 
So it's like, okay, the real question is how do you get to the end result? When you come into any organization or any situation, if you look at the end result and then try to work backwards, I think that's really hard sometimes. I think you have to have the end result in mind and you have to have this North Star that you're trying to get to, but then you have to actually look at your current situation. And if you try to solve it all at once, that gets really hard because sometimes when it gets when the problem is too big, you can make little adjustments, but you actually never solve any part of it. And so you actually never get there. And so what I like to do is break everything down and then eventually get to the micro and solve piece by piece by piece. And over time, those building blocks should create the building that you're trying to go get to. The pieces, I look at a company and I was like, okay, in my mind, there's four tracks to any company. You have an order to cash track. You have a hire to retire track. You have a procure to pay track. And then you have a corporate track. Within those four tracks, you have systems, people, and process. And you kind of look at each one of those tracks and how things happen, literally like breaking down how stuff happens. And then look at where friction is being created. Look at where data doesn't have integrity. Look at where we don't have the right folks to own. And you start solving things. When you come in, I already gone back to, hey, from a CFO organization, closing the books is table stakes, but you have to do it first. So like when I got to Freshworks, that's what we started on first. We had great people here supporting a business, but the reality was there was no investment being made historically to really get us to a point of compliance and comfort. But we were just making sure we could support the business and we could keep going. And so in order to go public, we had to pause. And so we actually looked at all those tracks and then we said, okay, you know, fundamentally, we need to start working on some stuff. And we picked a back office to start because those are the table stake items. We replaced a lot of our legacy systems. We re-implemented others. We looked at a lot of control structure. We looked at data. Data is really important. I mean, the simple things that people don't really talk about, like how do you define a customer? And if you actually pull a bunch of S1s, for businesses that are, you know, that are B2B businesses that are selling to companies, there is no common definition of a customer. It is actually a subjective thing. And so you have to decide it. But then once you decide, you actually have to live by it because you need to disclose things like how many customers do I have? You need to disclose things like what is your net dollar retention? In order to get to net dollar retention, you have to have a concept of expansion. In order to have a concept of expansion, you have to have a definition of a customer that then would be expanding. So when you look across your systems, if you don't have these common definitions, you need to do that. And so that's the work that we did when I first got the Freshworks, that the teams really dedicated themselves for the first year and a half on a whole set of projects across those four tracks to clean up a bunch of stuff. In cleaning things up, you also start to remove friction. That friction that I mentioned is like the whole goal is to let employees across all functions really focus on what their jobs are as opposed to focus on bureaucracy and administration and everything else. But in order to have comfort around that, you know, you have to create swim lanes so that you do have some governance around things. And within those swim lanes, those should be friction. And, you know, we still have a lot of work to do in some of these areas, but I think we've made a lot of progress. That's what readiness is like to me. Then when you get to a point where you feel like you've gotten to a point of readiness, like you can close your books with accuracy, you can do it in time, you can do it without any adjustments, stuff like that. That's the table stakes. Next piece is around forecast accuracy. Can you actually understand what you're going to do before you do it? In order to be public, that's a requirement. You have to be able to feel like you have control of your business and levers around it. And so for us, we have a set of metrics that let's call it like eight metrics 
that we will create forecasts around and then what we have a concept we call outlook. And then we hold ourselves accountable to come within ranges of those outlooks. And so when I look at all that, once we got to a point where we felt like we had the level of accuracy and that we could act like a public company before we were a public company, then we felt like we were ready to go public. Regarding the book's closure, I can attest to that because I remember the amount of collaboration and scaling we had to do at Charge B working with you to enable uh, your timely book closure. That's right. Yeah, of course. Thank you for helping us uh, scale the product with you. That's something that I'm super proud of. As a disclaimer to all our audience here, Freshworks is a Charge B customer for its subscription and recurring billing. And vice versa. Of course. Oh, yeah. And Charge B is a Freshworks customer. And it's been a long and tenured great partnership. Yes, it has. Coming back to one of the points you said about forecast accuracy, and I think you've mentioned this in another interview as well, where you said uh, that 100% predictability is that that elixir, that absolute goal for a CFO. But of course, then again, predictability of revenue, expense, cash flow, these are tough. There's so many variables today. So how does a CFO get close to achieving this predictability? And more specifically, how early should this start to matter? Is there some point where you shouldn't overinvest on this? Or is it a day zero thing where you start investing in forecasting accuracy and predictability of your operations? I think it's the latter. Let's start with just getting to, do you have accurate numbers, right? Because you can't even get to predictability if you don't have accurate numbers. Then do you have accurate numbers on a timely basis? If you're closing your books once a quarter, you're kind of blind all the way through the quarter. So you got to get to closing a month. Then do you have forecasts while you're in between periods? And so these are all infrastructure moves that you make Part of it is building up those functions that I talked about earlier that within a finance organization. So you have your accounting group, which is closing the books and also doing a lot of the operations around things like accounts payable and payroll and AR and billings and stuff like that. The next piece would be data, as I mentioned, which for us rolls up through our CIO organization. So it's really understanding how data is created and data flows and then the governance around data because that actually informs a lot of the information. I'm not even talking about financial information. I'm talking about maybe stuff that gets eventually related to financial information, but it could be headcount data. It could be data about vendors. It could be data around deals. It could be data around customers. It could be data on usage, all this kind of stuff. You lock all that down so that you know when you're looking at something and you want to create a forecast around it, you are at least baselining it against something that's accurate and going to be consistent. Lastly, you say, okay, what about the team that's going to be responsible for thinking about the business and partnering with the organization? And that's FP&A. In our FP&A organization, we have corporate FP&A, which kind of runs the entire model. And then we have business partners. And the business partners you know, are really ideally embedded within the functions and providing true decision support. And they are forward-looking, working with each function on how they deploy the resources that they have to get the, the best outcomes, and there's fluidity there. And then at the end of each period, the FP&A team, that's when they overlap with the accounting team. Because the FP&A team is forward-looking, but they're also in the business, so they know what should be happening. The accounting team is more backwards-looking, right? They have what they have in front of them, and they can see, and they're recording transactions. So then they need to partner because the FP&A team has more information about accruals and all commitments and everything else. The accounting, so that that's where expectations are set. Once you have all this in place, then you can come up with these concepts of how do we forecast and how do we think about the business. And it kind of starts with, okay, you have a business model and we run a business model. We run a subscription business model. So we think about levels of spend against ARR achievement. And we want to be able to 
number one, never get in front of our skis, but number two, grow as fast as possible and never let a budget be an inhibitor to growth. And so as such, we create fluidity to our business model where that we want to have a rolling four quarter model. So we're always looking out four quarters and we create the levels of spend based on goals. And those goals are typically percentages. And so we will release spend as we hit goals. And so number one, that's how you get to never being in front of your skis. So for example, on R&D, we'll have a target percentage of R&D as opposed to ARR that we want to spend. If we overachieve on ARR in any given quarter, we can pull in and open up headcount because we're hitting our targets. But if we don't hit our ARR, we just don't open those headcount. And since we do it one quarter, we hit the ARR first, we should never be over our skis, right? Never be surprised at spend. On the go-to-market side, it's the hardest because you actually need to invest ahead of the curve. So we will invest up to three quarters out, but we'll do it prescriptively. And we'll have, you know, we will know these are investments and then we'll look at uh, indicators of success or risk in order to be able to keep leaning in or to pause and digest. So that's the first thing, which is your business model. You do need a time-based structure though. So we take our business model and I say it's rolling four quarters. For the year, we'll take that snapshot of the four quarters for the year and that becomes the plan. And that is what we would be held accountable. And that gets locked in. We get a board to approve it and all this kind of stuff. And that is our plan for the year. We then have a concept of outlook, which every single quarter you have, say, once you get through Q1, you have your actuals for Q1. And then we put together a new outlook for the remainder of the year. So we'd have Q2, Q3, Q4 is now outlook. So we now have a plan that was locked. We have an actuals for Q1 and we have three quarters of outlook. The outlook is based on what we know after one quarter of actual, what we would expect to happen for the remainder of the year. Then every week we do a forecast. So think about this like you got plan, you got a quarterly outlook, and then you got this drumbeat, which is forecast. So we're constantly adapting what we are seeing in the business to, to change the numbers. The goal on predictability is to say, hey, at the beginning of each quarter, we're going to set our outlook. How close can we be at the beginning of the quarter to the end of the quarter based on outlook? So we'll lock in outlook, and then we'll go back and look at the end of the quarter. Is like, how accurate were we? And I said earlier, we have, let's call it six to eight metrics that we will hold ourselves accountable to fall within bands. For example, revenue, you never want to be below your revenue. But you also don't want to overachieve by too much either from a predictability perspective. So we'll have like a zero to 5% band on revenue that mean that we can come in 5% over. That's okay. If we come in 10% over, it means we really didn't know what was happening in the business and we didn't have enough predictability. If we come in under, that's bad, right? That shouldn't happen. And so that's how we hold ourselves accountable. And we'll do that all the way down to the hardest thing, which is ARR. ARR has three main components. You've got new logo ACV, you've got expansion, and you've got turn. And turn is inclusive deletion and downsell. And being able to get predictable to what your ending ARR is from the beginning of the quarter to the end, that's the hardest one. But if you can actually nail that, then you actually would have a lot, you know, you really feel that you have control of your business model. So hopefully that answers your question, how I think about predictability. And then the question you asked next was, how much before you go public do you need to do it? And my recommendation, you have this framework and you're looking at predictability. We actually tracked it for six quarters. 
And for six quarters, we would look at this and be like, okay, from the beginning quarter to the end, across this matrix, and then we would color code it, you know, red, yellow, green. If we fell within the band, green. If we kind of came at the edge of the band, it's yellow. If we came outside of the band, it's red. And if you look at your sheet, you, you need to have all greens and maybe a couple of yellows. And the yellows can never be below. They have to be above. Meaning like you're only supposed to be maximum 5% above revenue. You came in 6%, that would be yellow. But if you came in minus 1%, it's always red. And so when you look at that, when you have a situation where all of those boxes across those bands are all mainly green with a few yellows, you're like, okay, I feel like we have predictability now. I love how you're able to connect all of this data coming from across the org into a meaningful forecasting predictability machine that actually makes sense to the outside world. Now, coming in from the other side, how do you use this to influence the rest of the org internally? How does the CFO's org actually help the rest of the rest of the company leverage all of this intelligence and rapidly? For example, I don't know, maybe like CAC for marketing or in driving pricing decisions or even driving product investments. If you could give me a couple of examples of how the finance office is able to or should be able to help flash the right light bulbs in the rest of the org, that would be brilliant. I used to start with the highest level. So you think about, I talked about investing ahead of the curve for sales and go to market. And the reason you do that is when you make investments to build pipe and things like that, that will not be realized into revenue until it actually happens. And so you make investments based on historical knowledge. The historical knowledge would be like, what would a conversion rate be and something like that? But you know what happens if it doesn't come through? You can't live in fear though. So you have to be strategic and always have to be willing to invest. So you have this band of like, we are willing to make a mistake, invest ahead. But what are the indicators that we want to look at as we go along to think that we are in a good spot? And so think about field sales. So these are, you know, we have an inbound machine and we have an outbound machine. Our inbound feeds 100% of our SMB business. It also feeds a little bit, more than a little bit of our field and our partner. But the rest of the field has to have, which is our NGO sales efforts, has to have pipeline that's created through outbound campaigns. If there isn't enough pipeline, then your sales reps starve. If they starve, they leave. And it actually is a perpetuating problem. So the second is, you could have the right pipeline. So there's a delicate balance being done, the right amount of pipeline for the right amount of salespeople. If you hire too many salespeople, it doesn't mean you have a bad business. Because you can still have a good business, but if you don't have enough pipeline to feed all those salespeople, it actually could be a house of cards that everything fails. If you have too much pipeline, though, then you have salespeople and you don't have enough salespeople. Then you have people who fly over deals to get to deals, which means you're leaving a lot of deals on the table and you aren't growing as fast as you should as a company. And so how do you actually think about making these investments? So our job is to partner with our go-to-market individuals. And say, okay, let's think about investments and then come up with some efficiency metrics that we want to hold ourselves accountable to. The simplest one that we started at Zora because we ran a subscription business model at Zora is the GEI, which is a growth efficiency index. And it's our take on a magic number, a CAC ratio or something like that. But it, it's simplified. It effectively means like for every dollar that we put into our go-to-market motion, what do we get for it? That growth efficiency index, you can take down to different areas and actually look at the efficiency across different groups. Now, the place where we partner and help folks make decisions, which is your question, is like, well, if you have a greenfield area that you have not hired anybody in, it's not going to look as efficient. So how do you take areas that are more efficient and actually help them pay 
front areas that are less efficient if you want to hold yourself to a corporate efficiency standard. That's where a lot of these trade-offs happen. That's where a lot of the decision support happens. It's the same thing in product and engineering. Freshworks, we have a pretty broad product portfolio and we have a vision for products that we want to bring forth in the future. We also think that's going to fund our future growth. In order to make that happen, you can't simply say we're going to spend X amount of revenue or ARR on product and engineering and then do a pro rata spend across the revenue that we might have or the bookings goals that we might have into product and engineering. If you did that, you would never fund your incubator products. And so what we first do is like, okay, what does the future mean for us? And what are the products that we really need to make sure that we protect from an investment perspective to make sure that we have enough engineering for going into these future products? And you carve those out. And then you look at your other product and say, okay, well, how can we fund these to meet our needs? And then what are the trade-offs that we'd have to make? That's the partnership that needs to happen. And to do that, the FP&A group, they need to understand the business and need to understand the goals and the nuances of what's going on. So maybe one group has a much higher sustaining effort than the other and things like that. In doing so, we can help make decisions, help our the functional leaders make decisions that are going to be right, the best for the company. I love that, Tyler. And that was amazing. Unfortunately, we're almost on time. And I have one more question that I've been dying to ask you. In fact, it's less a question and more of a story. So there's a story of this pre-med student who decided to major in economics and then was trying to figure out what to do in life and then just landed somewhere along the way as a celebrated CFO. So if you could replay your career trajectory and you've done all of these really interesting things and I can see that you've gone through so many different parts of the maze to come out to where you are, is there something that you might do different if you had to hit a rewind and replay? I'm not sure. So you're right. I got to school. I had no idea what I wanted to do. If you want to be pre-med or pre-dental, you have to declare it right away because you have to start taking the classes right away. And so I kind of did that to keep my options open. I was like, I guess that'd be a good career. My mother was a nurse and she was a professor of nursing, but also a registered nurse. And I always respected that industry and how hard she worked. But economics and kind of the concepts of economics always just made sense to me, right? I was just fascinated by it. And I think economics just provides you a broad base kind of foundation of business and how things work. And so that kind of just connected. Now, I didn't have any finance classes. I didn't have any accounting classes because I was in the School of Arts and Sciences and that those are offered in the School of Management. So I had more like physics and chemistry and econ and micro theory, macro theory, and all that kind of stuff, along with broad-based core curriculum. Coming out of school, I just I was like, I just need a job, right? That's just like a lot of kids. It's just like, I gotta survive. I have a lot of debt I gotta pay off and I need a job. I was interviewing for sales jobs. I was interviewing for finance jobs. And the reality was, I was probably like most other kids. I didn't have any true industry knowledge or foundational knowledge of things. And so I interviewed with Coopers and Librand and I got a job in computer services, which was internal controls, kind of assessments for companies. I was like, okay, this is great. I had a couple of friends who took it. And I'm really glad I did because the training that I got through that company was fantastic. The opportunities were fantastic. And it allowed me eventually that I transferred into audit when I moved from Boston to San Jose, which is the office I transferred into. You're right. When I transferred, I did not know what a debit and credit was. I had no idea what accounting was. I just had no clue. But I learned quickly. And I think accounting is one of these things that either clicks or it doesn't. 
And I've always had stronger quantitative skills than anything else. And so it just, it, it worked for me. Would I have done anything differently? There's industries I think are like fascinating and industry and interesting. I think real estate is fascinating and interesting. And, you know, I maybe wish I had some background there. I wish I had taken some computer science classes. I think, you know, everything is software and being able to understand. I've had to learn over time. And I think I'm, I'm not technical by any means, but I think I know enough to be dangerous, but I can't code and stuff like that. And just to have some fundamental understanding of that would probably be interesting uh, and a great foundation. And I don't know if anybody should truly focus, right? Especially when they're right in school at their early years. They need to have a broad-based education, maybe not medical and stuff like that, but at least across other fundamentals. I don't have any regrets. I think there's regrets on jobs maybe I didn't take or things like that. But I don't know. I kind of have this saying, you can't look back, right? You got to look forward. In life, if you're constantly looking back and regretting things, you're just going to constantly beat yourself up. I'd rather think about how am I going to make the best opportunity and then also make the best decisions going forward. If you think that way, then I think work out better. Fundamentally, I also feel very, very blessed. I've been blessed with being with some great companies, having an incredible family and support system, great friends, and you know, living in the day and age that we live in. You know, it's not like I want for anything. And I feel like I've been blessed in the opportunities I've been given. So I had a broader skill set. One thing, foreign language. I wish I had stuck with that. I wish I could have more skills there. I also wish I played a musical instrument, which I don't. So these are all things that are on the bucket list. See, I'm really good at playing musical instruments. It's just that my wife's advice is just don't. <laughs> Does she think you're really good at playing musical instruments? That's the question. <laughs> but I have it. Like, I have the instruments around, but that doesn't mean I'm good at it. But anyways, I think your story has bunch of lessons for both the people already in the game, but also for folks that are just getting into the corporate world. You know, we're all faced with these questions every day of, is this the right thing? Should we get tied into this forever and ever and ever? I think both from the way you've been looking at forecasting and making investments as a CFO, but also the way you've looked at your trajectory and your career path itself is a brilliant lesson for all of us to be like, all right, you know what? Sure, you need to focus and you need to get give yourself a direction and you need to get your core metrics right. But it's okay. Give yourself a little bit of a wiggle room. That's all right. So thank you so much for this session today, Tyler. I absolutely enjoyed this conversation. I did as well. And great questions. And thank you for making us feel comfortable, but also thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. Great.